6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Calvinists generally don't, apply, don't, don't invest in evangelistic meetings, so they figure you're predestined. And uh, th- that's uh, perhaps an exaggeration. But this effectively denies the assurance of salvation. Proof is always in the future for the Calvinist. You won't know for sure until the end. That's why some people call that view the experimental predestinarian view. It's only by completing the experiment you find out whether you are predestined. And that sounds like it's self-contradictory, and it is, in a sense. The Armenian has just a different view. He believes that the justification can be lost. Believers are in danger of losing their salvation as a result of sinful behavior. So unless you persevere, you really weren't saved. A believer's eternal security rests in Christ's work and the individual's decision to continue the faith and not fall away. Notice the and. The Armenian, it's grace plus works that get you there. It, in effect, they don't mean it this way, but in effect denies that Christ's work was complete. Works play a key role for the Arminian, too. So there's similarities. Both these acknowledge that Christ's completed work is absolutely essential. Both acknowledge the importance of works in the life of the believer. Both do. They're both similar. They've been fighting for hundreds of years, these two views. But they're surprisingly similar when you really examine them. And these, although this direct opposition has endured for centuries, both of them are dangerously close to the Roman Catholic view which, in which salvation is, is uh, by works, which, of course, we reject. So there's two divisions. Calvinism, their concept of eternal security really being this experimental predestinarian thing. And Arminians, salvation can't be lost. These two views are considered the opposite poles of a view, of any person's view. There's a middle view that we're going to explore, and that is going to be called the partakers, partaking view. These are the metakoi. These are the ones that have overcome book of Revelation has seven specific promises to the overcomer. And my wife's book, The Kingdom of the Power and the Glory, is going to focus on the tools to become an overcomer. And now the overcomer, the partakers, are eternally secure. They're justified. They rely entirely on Christ's completed work for access to heaven. No question about that. But they make a distinction between entering heaven and inheriting they would view the kingdom as being people by two kinds of people, subjects and sovereigns. Not all subjects will be sovereigns. They might suggest that there's a difference between the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, that the bride is a called-out subset. There are different views, but these are all issues that will come up. The main point, though, is the partakers emphasize the variation of rewards. And the, the epistle to the Hebrews is a real problem epistle unless you have this third option. It's an awkward epistle. You stumble in it if you're either Calvinistic or Arminian because there's confusion on what I'll call the paradigm of salvation in the front end of it. 
So we're going to see a composite portrait of Christ, the coming rule of Christ. The, 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 it begins and ends with the coming glory of Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to see almost every issue that comes up will be dealt with seven quotations from the Old Testament. It's all built on the Old Testament. The kingdom is the grand central theme of all scripture. That startled me to realize that. I've known about the millennium since I was a kid. I've always been pre-millennial, but I never realized that the millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The kingdom is the grand central theme of all scripture. Read 1 Corinthians 15, starting about verse 20. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when I saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. Why? That God may be all in all. The climax to Christ's work is going to be it be, reach its peak in the millennium. It's the most important topic in the Bible, cover to cover. This is the big climax. Now, since this is the grand theme of all Scripture, one of the problems we all will face, the reason it's so widely misunderstood among Christians today, is the very foundation of this epistle is denied by the churches. They tend to view the millennium as allegorical. It's just one chapter in Revelation and they, 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 they don't really see Christ coming back to the earth to set up his kingdom while well, he reigns in our hearts. No, it's, they confuse Israel and the church and there's a whole side thing here. But the fact that most churches deny the kingdom, in spite of the fact we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We pray that, right? What does that mean? Our millennium Amillennialism is not a peripheral issue. I, for many years, joined most scholars in this area that feel, well, you could have different views of eschatology, but we shouldn't divide fellowship. And that's certainly, certainly true. They can be pre-trib, post -trib. People have different views. That's fine. Amillennialism, however, is a fork in the road that's far deeper than just eschatology. If someone is amillennial, they, in effect, whether they mean to or not, they're calling God a liar. And that's a serious issue. And they certainly will have no understanding of the book of Hebrews. There's more prophecy about the millennium than, the, than any other period in the entire Bible, cover to cover. The millennium is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. To really understand it, we we'll re really should start there. The Davidic covenant was what Gabriel promised Mary when he announced her child to come. When they had the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, James quotes from Amos 9 this very point. It's our inheritance, not our justification, that's in view. That'll be the result of faithfulness and obedience. 
It fascinates me as I study and prepare this book to realize how it underscores the integrity of the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, he saith, God says, that term is used five different times and it's quoted from Psalm, from Samuel, Psalm 97, Psalm 104. We'll do this, we'll hit this as we go. But again and again and again, the root is the Old Testament. Hebrews 2, 8 and 4, 2. The entire position of those passages hang on particular words that occur in Psalm 95. The whole thing hangs on that. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Numbers eleven seven is quoted, servant in my house, are key words that the issue hangs on. What fascinates me about the logic here is it, it, the precision that it draws from the Old Testament scriptures. Hebrews 8 is built on the relevance of one word, the word new, in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Hebrews 12, Proverbs 3.11 is quoted, which speaks of my son. It all hangs on that. Hebrews 12 connects Haggai 2.11, building an argument on the phrase, once more. In other words, what you, what you come away from all of this with is a profound respect for the precision of the Old Testament. And you begin to understand why you don't want to deal with the paraphrase. Because you'll lose that, you see. You'll blur that. You want to deal as close as you can to the original. The testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy, the writer uses types from the model. By studying Hebrews, looking at all aspects of Judaism, the letter was clearly aimed at a people who were Christians, but that came out of Judaism. And fo focus on the background they came from, and demonstrates how Jesus was a fulfillment, in fact, a supersedent of each of those things. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, basically. We speak of heavenlies. You'll discover that whenever something like this comes up, there's always seven uses and seven um, quotes that substantiate it. So we'll just jump in, take a couple of verses, and call it an evening. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. God. God spoke. This is exactly the way Paul opened the book of Romans. Read the first three verses of the book of Romans and you'll see the parallelism. God who at sundry times and divers manners, sundry times, many parts, many times, and divers manner, similes, remember Hosea 12.10, God used similes, metaphors, um, allegories. These are rhetorical devices. How many different kinds of rhetorical devices you find in the Bible? Over 200 They've all been cataloged and included in an appendix in our Cosmic Codes book. This is the seal of the Old Testament, spoke by and in God's... Let's go on to verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He's just first verse talked about the prophets. God spoke to the prophets. Now, now he, in these last days, he's spoken unto us by his Son. Not through his son, by his son being here. Okay? The woman of Samaria understood this. She understood the supremacy of the Messiah. He will tell us all, she says there in John 4. Prophets versus sons. The prophets spoke in diverse manners. Jesus not only spoke, but was the message. Prophets were sinful men. Of course, Jesus was not sinful of him. So he was sinless. Prophets did not understand the depths of the message. Jesus was the message, right? And... Uh, Prophets did not possess the Spirit continually. It come up on them for a period of time. In fact, David can plead, take not my, thy Holy Spirit from me. We can't plead that. 
the idea of the Holy Spirit could be a permanent gift was a miracle that even Paul had trouble embracing. Some of the prophets were fragmented, partial, and complete. All of these were eclipsed by Jesus Christ as the alternative. This transfiguration, you had Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets. Jesus superseded them both. That made very clear in Matthew 17. And of course, Jesus all through this is the exception. Like John the Baptist, the prophets would have to say, I'm not the light. I've simply come to give testimony to the light. Jesus was the light. Big difference. Well, moving on then, we have, he, he, in the last days he spoke unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Wow. Stop and think about what that means. Heir of all things. That's what Galatians 4 hammers away, the first half a dozen verses of that. The son is the father's heir, and we know from Genesis 21 that the heir is successor to all that the father has. Wow. The guarantee of God is absolute. There's plenty of verses on that. We don't have to badger that here. And who is heir with Christ? Everyone? No. But those that suffer with him. Those that are partakers. Those that are the overcomers. I often make the remark that I think most people that get to heaven are going to be disappointed. Why? Because they've been mistaught. We're taught that everybody's going to rule with Christ. That's not what it says. If so be that you suffer with them. If so be. There are footnotes to that. Yeah, you'll be in heaven. Great. But I think there's going to be tears in heaven. It's not going to be because of illness or sin or anything like that. It's going to be for lost opportunities. As you realize, oh, how we blew it. How we could have. Could have, would have, should have. By whom also he made the worlds. Who's he talking about here? Christ made the worlds. The word worlds here in the, is actually the Greek word Ionis, which really means time domains. You say, well, it means the whole universe. I think it means more than that. I think there are more time domains than we have any idea. And I think it's trans-dimensional issues that underlie a lot of our passages. By whom made the worlds? Some Bibles will say ages. They'll pick up the fact that it's plural. And they usually mean the whole entire creation. Indeed, that's certainly true. Jesus is the creator. That's what John says in his first three verses of his gospel. And that's what Paul says in Colossians 1.16 and elsewhere. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. Well said. Exactly right. That's un <laughs> uncontrollable wow. That's it. You, it's, this, is one, this is breathtaking stuff here. Now, if you're familiar with Paul, this sounds like Paul already, doesn't it? You know, Paul seemed to have a shortage of periods. You know. <laughs> Who being in the brightness of his glory. Whose glory? God's glory. The Father's glory. Jesus is the brightness of all of God's glory. I'll call him the true Shekinah, okay? The rays of the sun are the same stuff that the sun is made out of. You can't separate them. You can't look at the sun, but you can forget its heat and its benefit and so forth. There's an analogy here. But anyway, moving on. And the express image of his person. That word express image is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word from which we get character in the Greek. It means it, it, like a steel engraving, but it's from that Greek word that we get the word character, the express image of his person. All the prophets and all the writings up till now have been but shadows and hints at the aspect of Christ. But now Christ is here. 
That's what he's trying to get across. He's here. Handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. You think it includes physics? I think it does in some surprising ways. By the word of his power. And by the way, Colossians 1, 15, 17, and 20 enumerate these same things in the same order. It's a stylistic comment. I think it's, again, we see Paul's fingerprints here. The word for upholding here, upholding all things, is the very same word in the Septuagint that it uses when it speaks of the Spirit of God moving on the waters in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning, was God, uh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the Spirit of God moved, brooded, uphold, same word in the Greek, on the face of the waters. Genesis, the second verse of the entire Bible. Upholding all things by his power. You know, it's interesting. In, in school, you learn that positive and negative things do what? Do they rebel or what, what do they do? They attract. Good for you. So if I have two positives, what do they do? They repel. You have two negatives. They repel, right? And then when we get in school, you learn about atoms, right? There's a nucleus, and there's electrons running around this thing. That's one model of the, one attempt to uh, uh, model. The, uh, and we know that the nucleus consists of right neutrons and protons. Well, wait, I'm a little confused. Those protons repel each other, right? What holds them together? Well, nuclear glue is a, is a, a term w w that you use to indicate to your students you don't know what holds them together. You know. <laughs> and uh, then you've got these electrons moving around. You think, gee, they're negative. That's positive. They should collapse in, but they don't because the energy, where's the energy comes? And then you get into the zero-point energy, and I won't go into all that stuff. The point is, when you can release the glue that holds them together, what do you think happens? Most powerful force we know of on the planet Earth. I think that Jesus Christ is holding together. Not only did he create the universe, he, according to Colossians 1.16, by him all things consist. No, by him are they held together. And the day will come, Peter reminds us, that he's going to say, okay, it's over. So it's going to be... Meanwhile, when he had, pur uh, had by himself purged our sins, now this is going to anticipate an argument that's going to come up in chapter 2, but that's okay. The Greek aorist participle here is completed. It means it's done once and for all. He has purged our sins once and for all. We're going to hammer this later in Hebrews that there aren't mullah sacrifices. They're all just pointers to this one. But it's interesting, when you get to John 19.30, the word that Jesus proclaims from the cross is translated in the Greek, tetelestai, it is finished, the way John puts it, it also can mean paid in full in Colossians 2, but same idea. Okay, and then he sat down on the right hand. Now sitting is something that um, seniors do in front of juniors. Sitting down is a Assumption of seniority. Get the picture? And uh, so it's a position of honor in Job and Daniel and Revelation. You find it. It also implies abiding or continuance. He sat down at the right hand. He's going to stay a while. He's not there just for a ceremonial moment. 
It isn't temporary. It's abiding. It's interesting that there was no chair of any kind in the tabernacle. The priest could never sit down. Their work was never finished. Our high priest is sitting down. I think that's kind of interesting. And uh, he's at the right hand. That's obviously a position of power and honor in Exodus 15 and 1 Kings 2 and so on. And at the right hand of what? The majesty on high. That's kind of a tough phrase because it's a compound word that appears no place else in the New Testament. We can just guess what it means, of course. <laughs> Majesty on high, I guess, says it all. Well, in just th three verses here, to give you a sample, we found that Jesus is the heir of all things, that he's the son and the, uh, the ages were made. He's the brightness of God's glory, the image of the Father, upholds all things by his power, made purification of sin, and sat down. That, that's a pretty full plate for three verses. And the writer's just getting warmed up, okay? Jesus, we've had a summary here of three offices. The first three verses are a basic summary of the entire book. That's why I've gone this far. Christ's prophetic office, Christ's kingly office, Christ's priestly office. And the, 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 this first chapter in Hebrews is going to continue to hammer away that Jesus is superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to Joshua, to the priesthood, and all the fundamental ideas that were the underpinnings of Judaism. That's where he's headed. And so the next verse we'll take next time will be being made so much better than the angels. Wow. Okay. What do we know about angels? That's your assignment for next time. Think about what you know about angels. The son's going to be superior to the angels in his deity, humanity, and salvation. And we're going to encounter the first warning next time because we're not going to take just chapter one. We'll take chapter two. We'll try to get both chapters next time. We're not going to make three chapters a night that... We used it tonight just to get warmed up here, of course. So study carefully chapter 1, and if you're going to take notes, try to outline the Christological implications. What do you know about Christ from chapter 1? Just make a list. You'd be surprised. Chapter 2, what do we know about angels? And what lessons do you draw from the first five verses of chapter 2, which is the first of five warnings? That's a warning to you and me. We need to understand that. We're going to, so we're going to talk next time about the Son's superiority as deity. We'll talk about His humanity and how, it's, uh, how it impacts all of us. And we'll talk about His salvation. Manifest the divine grace to overcome the Prince of Death and to help, to help us. But I want you to notice the basis all the way through here. Not just the lesson, the methods. The authority of the Holy Spirit's Word. We're not relying on this because Paul was an apostle. We're not relying on this because it's the testimony of an eyewitness. No, 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 no. We're going to notice the authority of the Old Testament as a guide to our future. Not Paul's apostolic authority or authorship. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. So, oh, Father, we thank you that you have loved us so much as to bring us to this series of warnings. We thank you, Father, that you've loved us so much as to make us aware of the inheritance that's available to us if we're faithful, if we're obedient. Help us to understand our freedom from the law on the one hand 
and our liberty in Christ on the other. And help us to understand what you would have of each of us in the days ahead. We thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he completed all that is needful for our justification. That you have provided us passports to heaven that are stamped with an invitation to come in. And yet, Father, we thank you for alerting us to the fact that there are inheritances available to us if we are obedient to your calling. Oh, Father, we would pray that through through your word and through the guidance of your Holy Spirit, you would lead us in that path that you have provided for us that we too might be overcomers, that we might hear our Savior's words, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you, Father, as we become increasingly conscious of the advent of your coming kingdom, as we begin to realize the days are getting shorter. We do pray, Father, that you would help us to prioritize our very lives with the proximity of the kingdom that you've gone to such extremes to establish. As we commit ourselves this night into your hands, pleading the blood of our high priest, our King, our Redeemer, and our Savior, Yeshua, our Lord and Master. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.